If you have your Bibles, we are in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and these fine gentlemen will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9 this morning. Kevin, right there. Kevin, right to your right, right in front of you. <laughs> oh. I always thought you were doing it on purpose. He's like, where? Where? <laughs> right here. <laughs> All right. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 6, we read, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The title of my message this morning is Joy, dot, 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 the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just invite you here, Lord, just to be able to uh, give us clarity and understanding of your word and application, Lord, that as we leave this place this morning, Lord, we are more in love with you in tune with your spirit than when we first came in. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you speak to their hearts, Lord, especially help them to, to see the love that you have for them and the need that they have to come to you in faith. So bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you notice this or not, but we live in a youth-obsessed culture. Everything is geared for the youth. Every new piece of technology that comes along, you know, it's not really marketed for, for the old. I mean, you don't normally see commercials, you know, with couples in their 90s at a coffee shop checking out their smartphones and their Instagram and their, their you know, their texting. They don't do that. Everything is, is kind of geared around young people, what they have to say and what they think about. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. You know, we've had our day in the sun, so to speak, for some of us. It, it may have been quite a while ago, but and we keep telling ourselves, well, we're young at heart. I love it. Pastor Greg's book. It's called The Best is Yet to Come. He gives us this illustration on the ways songs should change their lyrics, their titles. For example... When we turn on the radio, maybe to our favorite oldie station, and we hear Leo Sayer's song, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, it needs to be updated. You Make Me Feel Like Napping is what it needs to be. <laughs> Abba's old song, Dancing Queen, should be renamed Denture Queen. Um, <laughs> remember Herman's Hermit from the British Invasion of the 60s? Their classic, Mrs. Brown, you have a lov- You've Got a Lovely Daughter. Should be Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely walker. Uh, uh. <laughs> the Bee Gees, how can you mend a broken heart? Should be, how can you mend a broken hip? <laughs> I like this one. Remember Crystal Gell's song, Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue. Maybe we could retitle it, Don't It Make My Brown Hair Blue. 
can relate to that one. can relate to a lot of these. Next one, really. The old Jerry Lee Lewis classic, a whole lot of shaking going on, a whole lot of aching going on. That would be a good one. And we can't forget the Beatles. Their famous cut from the once counterculture Sgt. Pepper's album, I get by with a little help from my friends. Could be, I get by with a little help from Depends. But here's what I like. Pastor Greg says, Here, here's what it comes down to. Let me quote. He says, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, if you belong to him, then you don't have to dread the passing of years. As a Christian, we know the best is yet to come. As you walk day by day with the Lord, living the way he wants you to live, you will acquire experiences and memories, distilled truth that will be a blessing to you and others later in life because you made the right choices and invested in the right things. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to know that he is with you right now, bringing his limitless power to bear on the details of your everyday life. His touch changes everything. And down the road, while there's nothing to stress about in our future, neither old age nor death, nor the fresh new life that awaits just around the corner. We can live that way in a state of excited anticipation, knowing that when you're a believer, God saves the best for last. I like that. So let me ask you this morning, what brings you joy, or as Pastor Gray calls it, excited anticipation. Well, Peter puts it this way. Look at verse 8. He says, though you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says, knowing you are saved, knowing the best is yet to come, can bring us joy inexpressible right now as we wait in excited anticipation for the Lord's return. No joy. It's that time of year that we bring out all the songs, we sing about joy, joy to the world, the Lord has come. I think we should change that title to joy to the world, the Lord is coming back very soon. You know, the word joy itself appears 158 times in the Bible. The word rejoice 199 times. Altogether, words like gladness and joy and joyful and rejoicing appear almost 500 times in God's Word. It's a constant theme. See, joy is the firm confidence that all is well regardless of the circumstances. Sherwood Wirt describes joy this way. Joy is the enjoyment of God and the good things that come from the hand of God. If our new freedom in Christ is a piece of angel food cake, joy is the frosting. If the Bible gives us the wonderful words of life, joy supplies the music. If the way to heaven turns out to be an arduous, steep climb, joy sets up the chairlift. I like that. I like how Peter describes joy here. It's inexpressible, you know, as he's looking forward to the presence of the Lord. Inexpressible literally means there's no words to describe the joy that comes from knowing you're saved. Knowing that you're going to spend eternity with God, the, the, the one who saved you and loves you. It, it's above words. There's no language to describe that type of joy. Can't articulate it. The Phillips translation renders that he brings you a joy that words cannot express. But sadly, we look around. A lot of Christians, they don't really live their lives like they have joy in their lives. Kind of walking around, maybe angry and depressed. I call it the Charlie Brown complex. You know, Charlie Brown, Christmas, Charlie Brown, has, 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 he's having trouble getting the Christmas spirit. So Linus says to him, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. 
Billy Sunday, the great evangelist before Billy Graham, once said, if you have no joy, there must be a leak in your Christianity somewhere. Why? Because your eyes are on your circumstances. Understand, Peter is writing to a people about joy that were in the midst of great suffering and persecution, horrible circumstances. And yet he's instructing them that even in the midst of great suffering, you can have joy, a joy that's not reliant upon happenings or circumstances, but is related to something far more secure and stable, our relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, Peter, in these just few verses this morning, lays out for us how true joy comes through our faith, through hope, and our love in Jesus Christ. And that's really our three points this morning, if you're taking notes. Joy that comes through faith, joy that comes through hope, and joy that comes through love. Our first point, joy that comes through faith. Faith has got to be the foundation. And it's not just faith in faith. You hear that a lot. Well, I just got to have faith there. Okay, faith in what? Our faith has got to be built upon a holy God who sent His Son to die for our sins. Our faith has got to be in the right place. You're not going to have true joy if your faith is in a church to save you. You're not going to have true joy if, if your faith is in the good works that, that, that you do to save you. You're not going to have a true and lasting joy if the foundation is in anything that you do. It's got to be in who He is and what He's done for you. Peter says in that, in verse 6, you greatly rejoice. And what? What brings us joy? Remember, again, it's what Peter said in the first five verses. Remember, follow, follow Peter's line of thinking here all the way from verse 1. First he says to these people, you guys have been picked by God, you're elect. That brings joy. That God has given you a living hope, verse 3. An inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't fade away, that's verse 4. And when this life is all over, it gets better in eternity, that's verse 5. And because of all that is true, you rejoice, verse 6, you have joy. That's what he's all built this to. But the foundation of all of this has got to be built on our faith. Faith in our God who is totally committed to our lives to do that work in us and to give us the power to do that which he's called each one of us to do. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's just who God is. We must believe that he is for us and if he is for us then nothing can stand against us. Therefore our faith is in God and what he's accomplishing in our lives. So this means that there's one constant factor in a world that is full of uncertainties and inconsistencies, and that is we serve a God who's totally committed to being our God, to being your God, and to those that know and love Jesus and have that that joy that comes through faith. And yet Peter continues to talk about our faith growing through times of trouble. Look at verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Note that Peter uses the word trials and not tribulations or persecutions because here he's dealing just with general problems that all Christians face on a daily basis. I suppose if we had to categorize our trials that we all face on a daily basis, I think we can break it down into three specific categories. Number one, there's the physical trials that we go through. Number two is the emotional trials we go through. And number three would be the spiritual trials we go through. So we have the physical trials. They're the ones where you, you have to battle the reality of cancer or strokes or heart attacks or birth defects or automobile accidents. These are the ones that Paul talk, talked about when he talked about his thorn in the flesh, which most scholars believe it was a lingering eye disease. 
Then there was a, a man named Simon who had leprosy. Job in the Old Testament, he basically boils all over his body, skin condition. There are chapters written about diseases and physical conditions that affect God's people. So we know there's physical trials that we all face. But there's also emotional trials. There's the trials like the heartache that comes from a divorce or, or the death of a loved one or maybe losing a good friend. I think that's one of the reasons we love the book of Psalms so much is because we can relate to David as he went through various trials and was able to record his emotions there in the Psalms. I think of Psalm 6, verse 6, when David cries out, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. I think we've probably been there. We're going, oh, David, I've been there. So we can go through these emotional trials. And then thirdly, we can go through spiritual trials. I don't think we think about them very much, but they're trials just the same. A spiritual trial is when we struggle over sin or we struggle over guilt. We wrestle with doubts about God, about our own walks with the Lord, about our salvation. Spiritual trials come when we wrestle with expectations that we may have of God, unreal, unrealistic expectations, and yet we feel that, that we're let down because God didn't, didn't you know, fulfill that expectation we have. Again, I think of Job. I'm sure he went through all three of these at once, and that happens. John the Baptist, he went through a spiritual trial. Remember, he was arrested, put in prison, and he believed in Jesus. And, and he thought that Jesus was the Messiah, but Jesus wasn't making that happen as quick as he thought he should or would. And so John began to have doubts. And so he sent messengers to Jesus to say, are you really the one or should we look for somebody else? So he's having a spiritual doubt, a spiritual trial, and, 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 and uh, those are spiritual expectations that weren't met. And, and so, by the way, Jesus does respond. and says, go tell him. John, the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of the gospel preach to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. We'll save that for another study. But the point is, trials are diverse. Various trials, we all go through them, physical, emotional, spiritual, cell phones going off during service. <laughs> That's all three of them at once. No. <laughs> But I want you to notice what Peter says about these trials. Look again at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The phrase, if need be. I want to underline that. In other words, there are special times when God knows that we need to go through a trial. Why? Because he wants us to grow in our faith, and he knows that that faith will then produce the joy in our lives. Now, sometimes the Lord does use trials in our lives to discipline us. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Other times we go through trials for our spiritual growth or even to help us pre to prevent us from, from sinning. Now, when we go through hard times and difficult days, people sometimes say, Well, I don't see how anything good can come out of this trial. Well, does the Bible say we see all things work together for good to those who love God? No. It says we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We may not see things working together for good this day or this month or this year or this lifetime. The Bible doesn't say we see it. The Bible says that we, we know it. That's what Peter is reminding the believers to whom he's writing. There's an end goal. Look at verse 7. He says, The genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's an end goal. I, I love here, big old burly fisherman Peter uses the word precious. I love it. But he says the road you take is going to be tested by fire because your faith is more precious than any earthly substance. Let me read this verse in the New Living Translation. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tested and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So when our faith is firmly grounded and our joy is established, we realize that we have a merciful God who allows His children to go through tough times, physical, emotional, spiritual trials, to produce a foundation of faith. So that as our faith grows, so does our joy. That's why, why Peter says it's far more precious than gold that perishes. Now, now, Peter's going all the way back to the book of Job and, and Job 23.10 where Job says, but he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. We've talked about this before. The ancient goldsmith, when they would go to refine the gold, they'd place it all in this, 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 this pot and, and they would intend to heat up to it so, it so it would melt and then all the impurities would rise to the top. They'd scrape off the impurities cool it down and then heat it up again. More impurities would rise to the top and they'd do this until it was, it was clear, until it was, you know, pure. Listen, trials do the same things for us as believers. They have a way of causing those impurities to be revealed. And as we go through a trial or time of testing, often what surfaces is, is pretty ugly. It can be very ugly. You know, maybe what surfaces is anger that you've had in your life and you realize that are bitterness or pride. Maybe it's harmful, hurtful words that come to the surface. And the Lord says, okay, this needs to be refined. This needs to be dealt with right now. And if we learn the lesson, great. If not, then it's back in the fire we go, back into another trial. You know, my prayer is not that I don't go through trials and times of difficulties because I know the Lord is strengthening my faith as I do. But my prayer is when I go through these trials and times of difficulties that I would learn the lesson the first time so I don't have to go through it a second time. I don't like the school of hard knocks. I like the school of first-time learning. That, that's what I like. I mean, again, when does the goldsmith know that the gold has been refined, that it's pure? When he can see his reflection in the gold. Same thing is true for us. The Lord knows when we are through, when he sees his reflection in us. So that when we go through times of testing, when the words that, that come out of our mouths are God's words, when the attitudes that come out of our hearts are God's heart, when there's compassion instead of bitterness, humbleness instead of pride, that's when God says, now I see my reflection. Come on out of the fire. But again, this is brought about in our lives through trials and difficulties we all face. It's a reason it's called the refiner's fire. Now there are those who think, well, there's just got to be a better way. I think sometimes that's our problem. We're always looking for the easy way out, the, the shortcut to spiritual growth and maturity. We want the, the cliff notes. You know, we want the fast food mentality. But listen, there are times when we simply have to go through the fire. There is no other way. But God does not allow that trial to destroy us, but to grow us up in Him. You know, 
I have a toaster at home. I think most of you probably do too. But there's one thing I've never quite figured out about toasters. Why is there a setting on the toaster that will burn your toast to an absolute crisp that no decent human being uh, would ever eat? Why is it there? Uh, I mean, lay up all night thinking about that. What, what purpose is that? But here's what I know. Uh, I'm glad that God doesn't have that setting on his toaster, right? That when I'm in a toaster of a trial, that God's toaster doesn't, you know, let me get burned to a crisp. Warren Wearsby says this concerning trials. They do not last forever. They are for a season. When God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. If we rebel, he may have to reset the clock. But if we submit, he will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants to teach us and that we bring glory to him alone. I like that. The Lord puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2 and 3. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In other words, God allows us to go through these trials, these difficulties, not to destroy us, but to grow us up in our faith because He knows the joy that comes through faith. When you see the Lord's hand in your life, in that trial, when you hear Him speak to your heart during that difficulty, when you see the Lord's faithfulness to get you through, man, how could you not be joyous? But this also produces hope so that when a new trial comes along, you're able to go, hey, God's got me through this one. I have hope He's going to get me through the next one. And that brings us to our second point, the joy that comes through hope. There's a great note of hope in what Peter's saying here. Look, look back at verse 6. Peter says, Now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. A little while. Listen, we all go through trials. And we will until the Lord takes us home. It's been said the only person whose troubles are behind them is a school bus driver. (laughs) You had to think about that one for a moment. But Peter says they only last for a little while. Why a little while? Because when we're in the midst of a heavy trial or suffering or difficulty, what do we say? When is this going to be over? Uh, when is this going to be done? There's no end to this. You know, we ask these questions. There's no, is there no light at the end of the tunnel? There's no way of easing the pain. Will I ever get past this, this trauma? Can I ever forgive and forget what's happened to me? Peter says, have hope. It's only for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He's letting us know it's not going to go on forever. I've shared this many times. My favorite phrase in the Bible is, and it came to pass. I love that. Why? Because we need to have that eternal perspective. That's what we looked at last time. Peter said in verse 3, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Letting us know that we need to have an eternal perspective. Because when our eyes are fixed on the trial, then we have those questions of uncertainty and doubt and we become overwhelmed in the difficulties. But if our eyes are fixed on the eternal then we'll be looking at the trial in life from an eternal perspective. People have all sorts of different perspectives. I've always liked the story about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson as they were camping out one night. As they laid down, Holmes said, Watson, look up into the sky and tell me what you see. Watson said, I see millions and millions of stars. Holmes then said, and what does that tell you? 
Watson replied, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and that we are insignificant. Meteorologically, it tells me that we have a beautiful day tomorrow. Then Watson said, well, what does it tell you? To which Holmes replied, well, it tells me somebody stole our tent. (laughs) It's all a matter of perspective. It's been said it's always darkest before the dawn. Or as Psalm 30 verse 5 tells us, weeping may endure for night, but joy comes in the morning. I think we can look around our world today and, and we can sense not that the best is yet to come, the worst is yet to come to the world. We're not going to suddenly have world peace. Iran is not going to give up their nuclear pursuit or their desire to destroy the U.S. and Israel. Russia isn't going to go, you know, this whole flexing of our muscles and power and land grabbing thing, we're really not into that anymore. China isn't going to say, hey, we're really sorry about the virus that we, did, we really did create it in a lab, but we promise we won't do it again. They're not going to say that. North Korea isn't going to say, you know, we really miss South Korea. Why can't we be friends? (laughs) In fact, what we do know is that there's coming a time of great tribulation upon the earth that the world has never known or will ever know. Yes, the worst is yet to come, but then in the end, the best will come. Because the best is Jesus Christ. When he returns to this earth, he will set up his kingdom that will have no end. And if our eyes are fixed on the eternal, then our lives will be touched with rays of hope and that puts joy in our hearts. Or as John would put it this way in 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is and everyone who has His hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Or as Paul puts it in Romans eight eighteen, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. See, when we look at life from an eternal perspective, it transforms us and it brings us one step closer to eternity with our Savior. And it's that kind of hope that brings us joy. But if your hope is in your investments or your 401k, you're going to be worried a lot. You won't have joy. You'll be looking at the paper. You'll be looking at at the market where it's going. You're going to try and protect them. I mean, you're monitoring the news, what analysts are saying, what's going to happen. But on the other hand, if you recognize that our hope is in Christ, and that we'll spend eternity with Him in heaven, then you you and I can experience joy that comes through hope that the world just doesn't understand. I read a story of how in England, after a person dies, they publish the contents in people's wills in the papers after the probate. Well, one day a couple was reading the newspaper. The husband came across a wealthy businessman that passed away. The man said to his wife, did you see that so-and-so passed away? No, she said. How much did he leave? He answered her, everything. <laughs> Why? Because one day we will leave everything. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how famous you are, how unknown you are, how wealthy you are. We leave it all behind. I've said this many times. You've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You leave it all. But to the Christian, we have, according to verse 4 here, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In other words, Peter says, I know what you're going through is rough, but it's only for a season, so rejoice greatly because you're going to go to heaven. The best is yet to come. That brings me hope. 
Listen, it's like this. Let's say you go to United Airlines, you're going to go on a trip, and you go to the counter there, and you say, okay, uh, I want to take a flight from here to Chicago. Is it on time? Well, they say to you, well, there's been some turbulence, but we absolutely guarantee that, that you'll get there. Our plane is in great shape. Pilots are fully qualified. You might experience a bump or two, but you're going to get there just fine. You say, well, hang on to my ticket just for a minute. Just go over to American Airlines. Got any seats in the flight to Chicago? You bet, says the agent. And we guarantee you're going to have a smooth ride, no bumps, no jolts, no air sickness, guaranteed smooth sailing all the way. It's the landing we're not so sure about. See, our landing gear is out. It's not working quite right. And, and we seem to have a problem with occasionally landing nose first. And all the brakes, well, they haven't been serviced recently. But we guarantee the flight's going to be smooth, even if the landing's a little iffy. So now you have to choose between a smooth flight with a crash landing or a bumpy flight with a safe landing. No doubt, you'll choose a bumpy flight. There are those who say, I don't want trials. I don't want to go against the world system. I don't want to deal with all of those church disciplines. I don't want to deal with problems. I don't want to deal with all those different types of trials. I just want smooth sailing. That's foolishness. Sure, you might escape a bump or two presently, but ultimately you're headed for disaster, fiery crash landing. On the other hand, those of us who presently deal with a bump or two along the way will make a safe landing in heaven. That's why Peter's emphasizing over and over and over again through his epistle that we need to set our sights on the big picture, on heaven. Look at these trials from an eternal perspective. If now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, know that we're almost done, they're almost over, we're almost home. We have hope because hope comes from a sense of near completion. You know, if you're a contractor, you're a builder, man, you have hope it's almost done when you see it almost done, or you're doing a puzzle this time of year. There are four or five pieces, oh, it's almost done, or maybe you've been on a long trip and you're driving and driving and you pull into your neighborhood, you go, oh man, I'm almost home. And in the same way, we certainly can understand Peter talking a lot about this hope of eternal life. He knew his days were numbered, he knew he was almost home. And he was feeling that the church was almost at the end of its days as well. That's why in verse 8 he says, You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving, verse 9, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. No doubt Peter remembered the words of the angels there in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, when they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go down into heaven. Or the way Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing to be in the presence of the Lord that is coming. So that even in the midst of trials and sufferings, we can have that joy and the hope of His coming. Hope in the salvation of your souls. Again, a quote from Warren Wiersbe. He writes, Men's hopes are dead hopes. Like cut flowers, they bloom a while and then they fade and die. The Christian's hope is fresh and fruitful because it's a living hope purchased by the living Christ and promised in the living word. There's a story I read about the early explorer of South Africa's ocean waters. Bartholomew Diaz went around the Cape in the stormy sea. His, his ship nearly broke into pieces but survived, so he called it the Cape of Storms. But then Vasco da Gama, another explorer who came later, changed the name to the Cape of Good Hope for he saw ahead of him the jewels and the treasures of India. You see, you can call this a life of storms if you want, but if you can see the glorious redemption of eternity ahead of you, you can call it what it only is in Christ, and that is a life of good hope. It brings us to point number three. If you're taking notes, the joy that comes through love, look again at verses 8 and 9. 
Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with, with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I mean, what, what great words of faith, hope, and love. Peter puts all of that in these two verses. Love, verse 8, whom you have not seen you love. Faith, though you do not see him, yet believing. Hope, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Oswald Chambers puts it this way, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. Understand, Peter loved the Lord Jesus. And Jesus loved Peter. And there is an inexpressible and glorious joy that comes from our love for Jesus and from knowing that Jesus loves us. And you can just see Peter's love for Christ in his commitment to him, not only found in his words here in this epistle, but in his life. There in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Peter gets a bum rap because he was sleeping instead of praying. But remember, it was Peter who suddenly woke up as a mob approached, leaped to his feet, drew his sword, and was ready to defend his Lord to the death. That's love. That's commitment. That's enthusiasm. Peter loved the Lord Jesus. But then after he blows it, denies the Lord and convinces himself that he's good for nothing. He goes back to his old life, back to fishing. Back, then the Lord suddenly comes, meets him where he's at, makes breakfast, breakfast for him and says, Hey, Pete, do you love me? And Peter says, Oh, Lord, you know all things. Yes, I love you. And as tradition tells us, we talked about last time, Peter was crucified upside down because he felt he was not worthy to be put to death the same way in which his Lord was. That's love. And so too, Peter says to us, Listen, you have the same love only special in your own way. Verse 8, again, speaking of our love for Jesus, he says, have, whom having not seen you love. Actually, in the original Greek language, it's much stronger. Of whom having never had a glimpse of you love. Now think of the audience that Peter was writing to. Peter was not writing to apostles that spent time with Jesus personally. He was writing to scattered believers throughout Asia Minor. They'd never seen Jesus with their own eyes. They never heard his voice. They never looked into his eyes when he spoke. They never ate with him. They never walked with him. In fact, they were not personal followers of Jesus at all, merely converts of those who had been personal followers. And yet these are the ones that Jesus prayed for there in John 17 when he prayed, I pray not for these alone, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. That's who Peter is speaking of here, or Jesus is speaking of here, and Peter is writing to and, and to us some 2,000 years later. Speaking of Jesus, he says, whom having not seen, you love. You know, there are many people today, they say, well, we fell in love at first sight. First time they see each other, they fell in love. It's been said, love at first sight is nothing special. It's been, when people have been looking at each other for years, that it becomes a miracle. (laughs) Now, my wife, Lisa, and I, we've been looking at each other for some 40, over 43 years, actually 50 years since we first met there in the nursery. And I have to say, um, (laughs) she looks more beautiful to me every single day as the years go by. But I remember like it was yesterday, her walking down that aisle on our wedding day. It was an old mission church. Uh, The the back doors, the lights were illuminated from the back door. You just see her. There's just glow on her wedding gown. Just beautiful. And she's walking up to, to come marry this guy that basically looked like one of the Bee Gees. Uh, you know, all white disco tuxedo on. And and here's what's amazing. But having seen me, she still loved me. In fact, she liked that look. 
But you see, our love for Christ is not based on physical sight because we haven't seen Him. Our love is based on faith and our spiritual relationship with Him and what the Word has taught us about Him. That's why Paul said, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now here's the thing. We have hope and the faith that we will one day see our Savior that we love and that loves us. You might be familiar with Horatio Spafford. He was a lawyer in Chicago in the 1800s, lost all of his uh, investments in the Chicago fire. He was famous for a hymn that he wrote called It Is Well With My Soul. He wrote the hymn after his four daughters were killed in the collision at sea on their way to Europe. It said that when his boat sailed out there to recover the damages is when he wrote the words for It Is Well With My Soul. But here's the point. One of the best verses in this song reads as follows. Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. He's saying, I long for the day when my faith will be fulfilled in what I see. That faith, hope, and love put in practice in the midst of a trial. Paul put it this way in Romans 5, 5, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, when you find yourself in, a, in a, some trial and you're hurt, immediately lift your heart to Christ in true love and faith and worship Him. Sing praises to Him. Why? Because that's when you'll see Jesus. Not, not physically, but you'll see Jesus move and work in your life in powerful ways. And as a result, it takes the poison out of the trial and replaces it with joy. Satan wants to bring trials in our lives to destroy us, to bring out the worst in us, but God wants to bring out the very best in us. Now, if we love ourselves more than we love Christ, then we will not experience any joy. But on the other hand, if we love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we're going to experience this joy inexpressible and full of glory regardless of our circumstances. And then we can say, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for a light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. And then we can experience joy that comes through faith, joy that comes through hope, joy that comes through love. Why joy? Because the best is yet to come. As we close, we're ready to enter time of communion. If you don't know Jesus, you cannot have this joy that we're talking about. You're still going to go through trials just the same. <laughs> Rain falls on the just and the unjust that the Bible says. You're going to go through difficulties, struggles. The difference is you don't have a Savior. You don't have a Lord to see you through, to give purpose behind those trials and those struggles that you're going through. But if you give your life to Jesus Christ, He will do so much for you. First and foremost, He'll take away all of your sin all your shame, all your guilt. Then he places his Holy Spirit inside you to give you the power to live for him. None of these things we talked about we can, we can do without the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to have joy and muster it up some way. Uh, I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to walk. No, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, a gift of the Holy Spirit is joy. But if you're not a believer, you don't have that. So my encouragement to you this morning is don't wait another moment. Give your life to Jesus. Surrender your heart to Him. Come to Him and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Turn from my sin today. Turn from it today. Ask Him to come fill your life. Be born again today. That's what He wants. He wants this relationship with Him. You to Him and Him to you because He loves you so much. 
Don't leave here without making that commitment. For us, as we, as believers, as we prepare our hearts for communion, there's so much going on in the world, especially this time of year. So much distractions and things that are happening. I know, say, when I leave church today, I'm going to have to, I'm going to run to the mall. I think it's open. I'm going to go over here. I've got to do this. We're going to have lunch over here. How about just for a minute before we close, calm our hearts, calm our minds, and just focus on what Jesus did for us upon that cross. The love that he poured out upon us, dying for us, rising again from the dead. And that's what, why Jesus said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, because you, your word brings hope to us, Lord, life to, our, to, our, to our, our bones, Lord. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but we came to know you as our Lord and our Savior. You breathed life into us. You gave us your spirit. Now we can walk with you with purpose and a goal and a direction. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that does not know you, Lord, that they would, they would turn right now to you and give their life to you. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed before we enter into communion, is there anybody here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again? Or you want to recommit your life to Jesus this morning? Why don't you raise your hand so I can just pray for you this morning? God bless you. Anybody else? Then give your life a recommit. Thank you, Lord, for this one that wants to recommit her life to you this morning. And Lord, in one sense, we all want to do that each and every day. Just commit our life to you afresh. Lord, bless this time of communion as we just look to you and remember what you did for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.